Hi, everyone. Welcome to Conservation Chronicles, our part two on wetlands. Uh, Camden's back with me. How are you doing, Camden? I'm doing quite well. How about yourself, Jonah? I'm good. Um, I feel like a sixth grader about to start school again, and I'm like, I don't want to. <laughs> oh, that's right. You're, yeah, your vacation's almost ending here. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I never had one. <laughs> <laughs> And you're taking classes right now, aren't you? Yeah, I'm going to be getting to take some classes here. So pretty excited. Yeah, sure. Wicked. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about... I don't know about you, but I am super excited to continue on with wetlands. I've been thinking about them since the last time we recorded. I know. And this I think I think about wetlands all the time. I think they're just up there and yeah, my yeah. thoughts. I'm yeah. obsessed with them. Um, well, before we start talking about some more stuff about wetlands. I mean, this has to do with wetlands, the piece of news I have today. Um, so it's, you know, it's a kind of a, a difficult call to officially declare a species extinct. And normally it happens a long time after a species has actually disappeared just because you can't be certain that it's extinct. Um, but there was just a study published um, that officially declared the Chinese paddlefish extinct um, after assessing, you know, lots of records and then even conducting two years of field surveys. The research team found that there were no more Chinese paddlefish on the Yangtze River and its tributaries and and two large lakes in southern China. Um, the study in the study they determined that the Chinese paddlefish probably became functionally extinct in 1993, meaning that the population was just so small, like reproduction probably wasn't even occurring. Um, and then they believe that it actually became extinct by 2005, and no later than 2010. Um, so it, you know, the usual suspects are to blame for the extinction, overfishing, habitat degradation um, from development, pollution, dam construction. Um, the Yangtze River is a really threatened ecosystem. Um, there's a species of dolphin, endemic species of freshwater dolphin that's probably extinct there. It hasn't been recorded in 18 years, but just like the Chinese well, unlike the Chinese paddlefish, it hasn't been officially declared because there's just that uncertainty. Um, the river's fisheries have collapsed. Um, two fish species are also likely extinct. The long spiky-headed carp and the Sichuan shovel-jaw fish. Um, and then, of course, many others are threatened. So, you know, that, that whole ecosystem is doing very poorly and the and that's a major river system, too. That's the crazy thing. Yeah, the river and all its tributaries, that whole watershed. It's, um, you know, the Chinese paddlefish is not the only casualty, but it's it's not often that we actually hear that a species has officially been declared extinct. And, of course, even though it has been declared extinct, there's a possibility it isn't. But and we cross our fingers, but but you know, after all of the work they did, uh, looking at previous records and patterns in those records, and then doing their own surveys, um, you know, they wouldn't say this un unless they were 
very, very certain. Um, so that's that's pretty tragic. Um, you should look up a paddlefish if you've never seen them. They're pretty amazing fish. Um, so, um, so that kind of had to do with wetlands. Um, you know, last in our last episode, we just kind of did a very basic overview of wetlands and you know lots of statistics about wetland degradation and the value of wetlands um, but in the second part we want to you know cover some more details about wetland protection research and then especially talk about a handful of um, major wetland systems from around the world as examples of degraded and restored wetlands um so, Camden, talk to us about Ramsar Convention. It's a great segue. So, you know, we we're talking about the diversity of uh, wetlands that exist and whatnot. And uh, luckily, there's, a, you know, an organization that exists in order to, to protect that and to kind of act as, I don't know, more or less the, you know, the UN of wetlands, if you will. If you, the Ramsar Convention of 1971, named after Ramsar, Iran, and so that's in the northern portion of Iran next to the Caspian Sea, uh, was, you know, where it was signed, is one of the world's oldest environmental protection treaties and the first to protect a, you know, a specific type of ecosystem. Um, so 1971 is pretty early, you know, for environmental. That's kind of the year where a lot of environmental law kind of came out, you know, across, uh, you know, in the West and so on and so forth. Um, so the mission of the convention is the conservation and wise, wise use of all wetlands through local, regional, and national actions, as well as international co- cooperation. Um, and so, you know, the Ramsar Convention groups major wetlands all across, you know, um, all across the world. And it represents about 171 uh, countries that uh, took part in the convention, uh, each of which has last at least one wetland of international importance. Uh, so these are known as Ramsar sites, you know, because of um, and they're going to and uh, a Ramsar site um, in order to get designated as a Ramsar site ha- needs, you know, some of the following qualities. The wetland must be significantly valuable internationally and not just for the country in which the wetland exists. So something that's not just, you know, a local, um, you know, of local importance, but regional and even continental importance, um, you know, the the designation also requires um you know how th- threatened wildlife and plants are in you know in order for protection if the wetland is critical for a certain life history stage of an animal or plant um you know how many different animal species uh that the wetland supports you know so for example if a wetland supports 1% of a non-avian animal species of you know, or subspecies global population meets the criteria for Ramsar status. Uh, that being said, while protection does not guarantee wetland enhancement or recovery of species, there are some examples where Ramsar site designation went beyond the political status and resulted in um, popul- you know, population recovery. A recent example comes from uh, three protected wetlands in Morocco. Uh, in which a water bird density and species richness, uh, excuse me, species richness uh, following Ramsar site designation. Uh, so, you know, of course, such benefits require convention parties to follow management guidance provided, you know, providing following site designation. Um, so, you know, it's not just because you're part of that and it was given site. If you know, if nothing's done, you know, it doesn't really do that much. Um, yeah, a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of these 
wetlands or, or parks or whatever they get Ramsar status. And this isn't just unique to the Ramsar convention, but they basically just become, you know, protected on paper, but not right. actually not in, in reality, which yeah. is actually the case for <laughs> almost most things. It seems. Yeah, like. exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. That, that one study that from Morocco that found, you know, how water bird density and species richness increased after Ramsar designation. There's not really a lot of studies that have looked at that, especially because, you know, a lot of, well, I don't want to say especially because, but, you know, a lot of Ramsar sites were designated in the past before, you know, research or wildlife monitoring began. So there's not really, you can't really do a before and after. Um, it's also a broad subject, you know, how do you go about, what are the, how do you measure that exactly? Yeah, and this study just chose to focus on water birds. And water birds are a really big part of mm-hmm. Ramsar, because like you said, well, it's not just water birds, but water birds are often used to help designate an indicator, yeah. a Ramsar site, like you said, if... Um, it's if a wetland supports 1% of a species, um, then it could be eligible for a Ramsar status. And often it's birds that do that. It, you know, most of the times I see it's birds that help wetlands become Ramsar sites, not, not fish, um, because it's mm. kind of hard to know entire fish populations in a lot of these places. Um, Speaking of difficulty of knowledge, can you tell us a little bit more about like just that, the different knowledge gaps and these kinds of things? Yeah, so um, if you read literature on uh, wetlands in general or wetland protection um, or wildlife that occur in wetlands like water birds or fish, um, you know, a lot of professionals call attention to a bias that exists in conservation research research towards terrestrial habitats and, and certain taxonomic groups. And so this has resulted in sort of less than adequate knowledge about wetland ecosystems. So while water birds may be heavily studied in a wetland or large mammals, um, there's very, there might be a lot less known about fish or invertebrates or mollusks. Bentos or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, and there's actually, there, there's lots of papers that talk about this because it's a, it's a serious issue. Um, but there's a, a study that I like and have used in a lot of my writings from 2011 by Darwall et al. And they actually showed that birds, mammals, and amphibians, which are, you know, the ones that are normally studied, are poor surrogates for assessing freshwater biodiversity in Africa compared to crabs, fish, and mollusks, which, of course, are notoriously understudied, especially in a place like Africa. And so even though this, you know, this study was looking at um, surrogates in Africa, wetland surrogates in Africa, this trend is probably true in most other parts of the world. Maybe it might be different in the United States because um, there's so much fisheries work and um, 
there's also a lot of funding for it yeah exactly to african countries yeah yeah um and just compared to the rest of the world and so you know the the terrestrial bias in research has also really influenced the way we assess the value of certain areas and protect them so historically especially in places like africa when it comes to designation of national parks or other protected areas wetland systems have generally just been included incidentally um i mean of course there's important exceptions but you know there a lot of these protected areas have become established either for protecting certain megafauna or protecting like a plane or something and you know whatever wetland habitats get included in that protected area it's just it's just incidental and so i mean wetlands you know even though in like in the last episode we talked about how important they are and how biodiverse they are they they get neglected in a lot of these things and especially historically you know we're a lot we're improving in it at it in a lot of ways now but still you know we have these traditional national parks that really don't include like major major wetlands um and so you know as our understanding of the value of wetlands increases whether it's economic or ecological this research bias really needs to disappear um and just personally i'm convinced that the more we increase our ecological knowledge about wetlands and wetland species the more people would be convinced to conserve them because as if hopefully yeah (laughs) as if there's not enough evidence on why they're valuable now but um you know looking at thing focusing more research on fish and mollusks and crabs especially fish because they um you know people are dependent on them in a lot of places it could it just is it's only going to help and it's also really right. going to help to and they're also more gaps. sensitive too you know because they're you know their entire life depends on the water whereas a bird and other things like that that you know they're coming and going yeah um and so one of the most one of the most apparent areas of research inadequacy in my opinion is landscape wetland connectivity um which of course is just a personal interest of mine, um, especially because that's what I'm trying to study in Zambia. But it, you know, across the board, we just need to be more holistic with landscape conservation and, um, you know, taking a, a local and a landscape approach is really valuable. And it just allows for collaboration on different scales. Um, But I just think we don't focus enough on broad ecosystems. Um, We really are so heavily into species-specific research. And I think at this stage, we know how important landscape conservation is, but there's just not enough work focusing on that. And um, you know, species specific research has its place, but I think we sell it doesn't explain for everything. Yeah. Yeah. We just, 
you know, we so narrowly focus on that a lot of times. And, you know, in addition to investigating species specific ecology and research, we need to put emphasis on how these different species are interacting. So we have a more holistic understanding because, and of course this doesn't just apply to wetlands, but when you have something as richly inter, you know, interconnected. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that came through in our last episode (laughs) that, you know, wetlands are interconnected throughout lots of other habitat types across a landscape, you know, especially when you have so many water bird species that are migratory connectivity is really important. It's important for fisheries. Um, You know, these are issues why, or these are reasons why dams are issues for things like fish. Um, And anyways, my whole point is that we just need to be more holistic instead of, you know, solely focusing on species specific research. And, you know, in some parts of the world, we're better at this and some parts we could really improve, you know, and just from my experience, Africa has such major wetland ecosystems and there's just no research that's taking this holistic approach. Um, so anyways, uh, that's my, that's my research rant. <laughs> um, so let's talk about some example wetlands, um, which it's hard to, uh, this was hard to choose to them. Those. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also hard in some cases to define a specific wetland geographically just because, like we just said, they're inter- interconnected across the landscape. But so we, we try to, you know, pick some wetlands that are so extensive and so large and so unique that they have been defined and named. Um, you know, in addition to ones that, we're going to talk about there's uh, many other i mean we could we could do this all day um you know you have have a separate podcast yeah where each episode you just talk about one of these wetlands um yeah and go into really depth you know some ones that come to mind right away are the okavango delta in botswana the sud in south sudan which is part of the the nile river basin um the everglades of florida the pantanal in south america the Sundarbans in India, which is a huge mangrove delta. India and Bangladesh. Yeah. Um, you know, those are just a few. And then, like we said in the last episode, a lot of people consider reefs to be wetlands. And so yeah. you've got the Great that Barrier extends. Reef in Australia, then the Barrier Reef in Belize, um, the reef at the Amazon River Delta that was just described in the last couple of years. Um, but we kind of chose to, to break up the wetlands we want to talk about into two categories. So we've got, or three categories, actually, you know, we've got degraded wetlands, which are doing poorly and probably not going to recover to what they once were. And then we've got, um, wetlands that have been or are being restored or are still, in good condition and then we have man-made wetlands which um do play a role and and we'll talk about that so 
Why don't you start us off, Camden, with some degraded wetlands? Yeah, sounds good. So if anyone remembers from uh, the episode we did on, uh, I think it was Rewilding Europe, I think I mentioned um, uh, lions that used to live in southern Iraq in the Mesopotamian marshes. So guess what? We're going to talk about Mesopotamian marshes. This is one, I mean, granted, all of these fascinate me a great deal, but there's something about the Mesopotamian marshes that really is, I find very interesting. You know, the Mesopotamian marshes are home to uh, people known as the Marsh Arabs. Um, If you aren't familiar with them, I would suggest looking up. They're a, you know, you know, thousands, thousands of year old culture. Um, they make their houses out of reeds and, uh, the way in which they make these houses have not changed since the time of the Sumerians. So it's, it's, it's really incredible. Um, so originally the Mesopotamian marshes was a very extensive system that, uh, was found in southern Iraq and portions of Iran, heading in, you know, where the Tigris and Euphrates Delta, uh, excuse me, Tigris and the Euphrates systems, river systems met, heading into the Persian Gulf. Uh, very rich in, you know, uh, avian fauna, uh, f- you know, fish, major mammals, and so on and so forth. Unfortunately, you know, it's become a very degraded, you know, series of ecosystems. Um, one of the first, you know, even as early as the 1950s, the, you know, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers upriver in places like Syria and Turkey, um, started to experience, you know, some damming and whatnot, uh, to provide either, uh, you know, irrigation or, you know, a little bit of hydroelectric here and there. Um, and that, you know, impacted it but nothing crazy at the beginning later on in the 1970s uh, on the upper river there we started to see some major construction of dams which greatly limited the flow of water going into iraq and you know thus far the the marshes um perhaps the in not perhaps but the most damaging um event that ever occurred to the iraqi martian was um the decision by saddam hussein to actually drain the iraqi marshes now that was totally a political move and so um you know a lot of times we're thinking about you know economic reasons and whatnot but sometimes you know these wetlands are you know held as hostages in political situations and the, the situation was the following basically in southern iraq it's uh, you know people uh, um that were shia there were some uprisings and basically saddam hussein in the 90s decided to get back at them trying to get rid of um some of the you know the the, the rebels had you know kind of uh, found refuge in the in the marshes and he literally wanted to drain out the marshes so they had literally no place to hide i mean these are extensive extensive you know marshes um and uh, so uh, several thousand people had to leave their home and their way of life because their entire world pretty much you know um uh, you know, sh- shriveled up basically. Uh, those canal, you know, they drained the marshes to a series of canals that basically led off into the desert, just to you know evaporate. Basically, really no- served no purpose much than that. Uh, so, really incredibly damaging man-made um, you know disaster here. Um, and uh, by night, 2003, the marshes lost about 90% of the original range of 3,000 square, you know, of the original range of 3,700 square miles. So the equivalent of almost 10,000 square kilometers. Um, but with the fall of Saddam Hussein, however, a lot of uh, people's, uh, you know, from marshes that took refuge in other places started to come back to the marshes and they started to tear down some of those canal, uh, those dams and canals in order to bring back some, the water. 
uh, at that, you know, so jump five years, 2008, we see about a 75% restoration. Um, however, jumping, you know, to 2015, it's already, you know, it's decreasing now back to 50%. And let's explain for a couple of factors. Um, once again, the damming of uh, the river, you know, Euphrates and um, Tigris River, upriver in places like Turkey and Syria. You know, all these things have, you know, geopolitical ramifications and whatnot. And the problem with that is not only is there less water, but, you know, these, these you know, river systems are reaching directly into the Persian Gulf. And now that there's a, you know, a, a you know, not as high flow of water. Now, uh, salt from the Persian Gulf is actually making its way up river. Um, and that's led to, um, like, for example, um, they've become more and more saline. So nowadays you can find about 50, 15,000 ppm of salt compared to 500 ppm in the 80s, which is very scary. Um, and so this means, you know, the dying of plants because they can't deal with that much salt. You know, you know they're not... Um, you know, they're not, how would I say, like coastal shrubbery, you know, they're, you know, they're just fresh water, you know, and they're supposed to be in brackish water or very little degrees of salt. Um, it's also fish aren't able to sustain it. Um, and then, you know, there's less and less food to go around. And so that's affecting the entire, you know, trophic, uh, pyramid, if you will. Um, therefore birds are being affected because they have less and less food to eat. There's also less land for them, more conflict with people. And it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's on the decrease now. There was a little period of hope, but nowadays it's, um, it doesn't look so good. Uh, so going back to birds, you know, very important stopping grounds for birds, but 40 to 60% of the world's populations of, uh, of one species, the marble teal, uses the marshes, um, as well as the, the, the largest population of the Basra reed warblers use the marshes and as, you know, breeding ground and whatnot. Um, and, uh, they're greatly being impacted. Um, many species of mammals have gone extinct in the last 50 years. For example, bandicoot rat, if I'm not mistaken, uh, they haven't seen any, you know, the Indian subspecies of wolves in the area. They haven't, um, you know, of course, you know, the major species, you know, larger fauna, such as, um, you know, the Mesopotamian lion has gone extinct for, since a long time. But uh, they used to be on the periphery of the marshes, you know, goiter, gazelle and so on and forth. And they're all pretty much disappeared this time. Also, uh, there's a unique species of this, you know, the, the, the smooth coat otter. This is its farthest western range um in asia and iraq and um, there's a special subspecies that was discovered by the author of the book that we both read the uh, people of the reed which i highly recommend uh, maxwell and that species of smooth-coated otter um is very much on the decline right now uh so it's kind of an iconic species for the area kind of you know like a how would you what would you call those um uh there's a flagship species but uh they're and then, of course, it's also a war zone, so there's really a lot of missing data and whatnot. So it's it's pretty it's pretty drastic. Um, kind of continuing on with that doom and gloom here, let's talk about even a crazier, uh, you know, human made disaster. Now, I'm pretty sure all of our you know listeners here are familiar with what happened to the Aral Sea. Now, the Aral Sea is, of course, it's called sea because of the salt content, but you know, it's a, a landlocked lake basically. Um, very, very large, found in Central Asia, is one of the first largest, you know, lakes in the world. Uh, but now it's about 10% of its original range. 
which is crazy if you look and I'm I think if I'm not mistaken uh, I, I provided it in the notes but if we're not we can add that to the the sources uh, there's some really good um, and very frightening satellite imagery of the arrow so you can see how much it's shrunk up uh, it is it is horrifying uh, when you are traveling in places like Kazakhstan and you're going to, you know, all of a sudden you're, you're let's say you want to go see the Aral Sea, you'll be driving for miles upon miles of what used to be the actual sea until you find where it is now. Um, so let's explain the factors in which that happened, why that happened. So, um, you know, in the 60s, Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan were underneath the Soviet Union, um, and the Soviet Union decided to take an under, you know, undertook a, under, they decided to take an undertake a massive water diversion project on the plains of Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan by diverting water from the two major sources, some of the two major sources, uh, rivers, the Sirdara and Amudara, very famous rivers that go back to antiquity, um, and those were used for large scale, you know, large scale crops, particularly cotton and whatnot. Um, a lot of times people don't realize, but Uzbekistan is a huge exporter of cotton all across the world and has been for quite some time. Um, so just like with the Mesopotamian um, marshes, you know, huge increase of salt, you know, the fisheries have been completely depleted. You know, the animals that used to stop by like water birds are completely, you know, no longer able to come there. Um, you know, it's... For example, I, we have a, I have a stat here on the commercial fishing. Commercial fishing on the sea once produced one-sixth of the entire Soviet Union's fish catch. By 1987, it was pretty much inexistent. Basically, when you go there, it looks like you're you're in a desert, and all of a sudden, you start seeing ships, empty ships all over the place in the middle of the desert. Uh, it's very, very, um, you know, very depressing. Eerie. Um, you know, it's basically, you know, a mass ship graveyard. Um, you know, once again, salted, you know, polluted from agriculture runoff, uh, huge, huge, you know, man-made disaster. Um, you also deal with, you know, increase of dust, you know, blowing of dust from the dry area, exposed lake bed. Uh, there's agricultural chemicals. Um, this poses, of course, a great health risk for the people nearby and wildlife. Um, you know, you have a high fatality in respiratory illnesses and digestive disorders. And of course, that you know, salty dust is not blowing, you know, it's not just blowing where the sea used to be. It's blowing all across the place. You know, this is, you know, these are, this is a step in plains area. It's fairly flat in that portion of the region. So this is being carried all over the place. Um, and so it's degrading soils and destroying crops. Um, has even, the loss of the lake, which is crazy, has even altered the local climate, making winters colder and summers even hotter and drier because there's no body of water. Uh, or a very little body of water. Um, so in a last-ditch attempt to save some of the sea, the Kazakhstan built a dam in 2005 to between the North and South Seas because it's basically it's separated into two portions. Um, it's it actually even created into four separate smaller lakes. Um, and so some fisheries in the Northern Dam Sea have rebounded a little bit. The Eastern Basin of the Sea dried up uh, before 2014. It has been since known as the Erolkum Desert. Uh, the shrinking of the scene has also been, you know, and it is probably right up there, in my opinion, one of the worst environmental dis disasters on the planet. Um, you know, the, I remember probably in the last couple of years, there was some talk of it getting a little bit better, but it's one of those situations kind of like if, you know, a little bit worse, much worse than the, you know, Mesopotamian marshes. It's kind of gone past beyond redemption of, you know being able to restore <laughs> yeah i think 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds I, like I a think great it was title right there. In 2018, there was like a lot more inflow from the rivers. And so if you look at the satellite imagery, it's like, oh, the sea is coming back. But I think it was just a, like a seasonal thing. Maybe a significant snowfall on the Jinshin Mountains or something like that. But <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Or not. Yeah. But it's a, it's a very devastating, devastating uh, issue. Yeah. Um, well, we're talking about degraded wetlands, so it's just going to stay somber. Um, moving to North America. We have a region of the Northern Great Plains called the Prairie Potholes region. And these are depressional wetlands. And so it's not like one big wetland or one big lake. It's like a whole region of wetlands um, where basically the the glaciers receded and sort of pockmarked the landscape and left left a bunch of depressions where water either kettles yeah yeah where water stays year round or it's only there in certain years or it's just seasonal partially fed um so there's lots of different types of prairie potholes but as a as a whole this region Um, 40% of which is in the United States, 60% of which is in Canada, is made up of all these wetlands across the plains. And if you, if you go to this area and and like on Google earth, I mean, or you could go physically. It looks like it was, you know, it looks like pictures from, um, from World War One, you know, with all the shelling, you know, it's just, yeah, it's just like, uh, it's just like bunch of little mosaic of ponds uh, yeah ponds and whatnot yeah um so this whole region is the number one most important and threatened waterfowl habitat in north america and a lot of times it's called the duck factory because it provides <laughs> of habitat. course it's called the duck factory <laughs> yeah because it provides habitat for 50 to 80 percent of north american ducks um the whole pothole region covers about 300,000 square miles or 770,000, 777,000 square kilometers. So it's massive. Um, in the United States, you know, of course, this is, you know, it, it's that size, like geographically, but the wetlands are severely degraded and don't cover that much area. Because um, in the United States, especially federal subsidy programs for agriculture in the 20th century led people to seriously convert and drain wetlands. Um, You know, the the degradation that resulted from these federal subsidies coincided with the expansion of industrial agriculture in the Northern Great Plains. So what time frame are we talking about? uh, The like early to mid uh, 20th century. Okay, that's not, that's what I was thinking of, I'm sure. So so basically it you know these subsidies it with these subsidies it became financially beneficial for farmers to destroy wetlands and taxpayers were paying for it. Um classic classic United States subsidies. Um so 
you know, along with just over harvesting of ducks, this severe degradation of their breeding habitat was one of the reasons that in the early 20th century, a lot of duck populations were crashing. And if you look at reports from Congress, it wasn't until like the 1980s where these reports were showing how much damage had been damage had been caused and they were calling for these subsidy programs to be reversed. And so, you know, there's a lot of restoration that's going on in the Prairie Pothole region um, by government agencies and NGOs. And, but, you know, it it's just like these other wetlands, it's probably, it's always probably going to be a shadow of its former self, especially if you look it's at Google, glory. if you look at Google Earth, um, you'll see that it's just, you know, there's there, all these pools are still there filled with water, but they're just on a completely agricultural landscape. And especially in the United States, it's not as bad in, in Canada. Um, there's an EPA study that found between 1997 and 2009, wetlands in the pothole region decreased in area by 20%. So this is after these subsidies have been taken away, all these restoration efforts are going on. Still, the area of wetlands has decreased by 20%. And then during that same period, the number of wetland basins decreased by 4%. So it's just, you know, continuing to decline despite all these efforts. Um, you know, one of the, the issues is that draining of these wetlands has moved surface water into fewer wetlands, but now these wetlands are larger, and so they don't really have the same ability to control flooding, and like the, you know, larger number of smaller wetlands had in the past, and then these larger wetlands just aren't as productive as wildlife habitat because there's just more open surface water compared to lots more perimeter with vegetation. Right. Um, only about 40% of the potholes are currently undrained. So, yeah, that's a bad, that's a bad statistic. Yeah, that's a bad statistic. It's not even half, it's less than half. Yeah, and, and of, of course, this next statistic is the reason that we are still seeing a decline and that these wetlands are still so degraded because the prairie pothole region produces 33% of grain and soybean in the United States. So barring some major philosophical changes in this country, which is obviously not going to happen. It's just, it's unlikely that the prairie potholes are ever going to again be restored to their former glory. Um, they're beyond redemption at this point, especially because industrial agriculture still rules this country. It sure does. Of course it is. Got to keep that beef price down, you know? Yep. <laughs> I've said it before, uh, and I'll say it again. Domestic animals are at the root of so many issues in this world. Yes, they are. Well, the way in which we are producing them, yeah. I mean, if we all had our little farms, it'd be a different story. But yeah, exactly. Um. 
so continuing on, I know uh, you guys didn't know, listeners, that it's going to be so <laughs> depressing. Um, continue on here. We've got, uh, we're, t- we're talking about the inner Niger, uh, Niger Delta. Uh, so unlike what the name says, we're talking about the Niger River. However, it is found in Mali. So Sahelian, sub-Saharan African country. One of the largest floodplains in Africa. It's actually the third largest Ramsar wetland in the world, and probably most people haven't heard about or had the least, slightest idea about it. Um, you know, highly seasonal flooding from the Niger and from the Bani rivers, like all major wetland systems, extremely biodiverse, providing habitat for 350 bird species, over 100 fish species, and 34 of which are endemic which is pretty incredible. And also, of course, like, you know, other mammal uh, mammal species like uh, hippos, but also the African manatee. Uh, very interesting to think about, you know, to see the interaction between those two. That'd be interesting to observe if that ever does happen. You know, kind of confused what each other are, very similar in size. Yeah. But um, opposite this, personalities, though. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, I think the manatee's kind of like the Canada <laughs> and the hippo's kind of <laughs> like the United States. <laughs> like, what are you doing in my territory? <laughs> <laughs> um, this delta, uh, due to the, you know, the quantity of fish and whatnot, um, and fertility supports over 2 million people. Um, so, 2 million people plus uh, wetland, you know, sometimes can lead to a Several issues. This is why we also found in a you know degraded category um, with a combination you know for a perfect storm of uh, dam sedimentation, drought, and overexploitation have greatly uh, threatened the delta for decades. Uh, dams, like they do, altered flood regimes and resulted in less flow downstream. Sedimentation of the river has resulted from uh, that you know has resulted from deforestation, desertification in the region. Uh, prolonged drought since the 1980s has led to greater human conflict over resources, and therefore, habit, you know, wildlife habitat loss and poor agricultural productivity. Uh, the extent and duration of floods have decreased, and fisheries therefore have suffered. The introduction of nylon fishing nets in the 1960s, oh, nylon, um, is also implicated in the collapse of many fisheries because, of course, now it's like shooting fish in a barrel. Um, consequently, many water birds have disappeared and or have become uncommon, including five species of storks, the Goliath heron, the Hadeda ibis, and the African skimmer, for example. Uh, raptors and many other species have disappeared uh, for the questions and um, or their populations have declined too. Um, yeah, definitely, A, like I said, not a well-known situation, Grant, and on top of that, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of human, human, you know, human on human con- conflict, therefore, you know, wildlife and these kinds of things like that becomes, you know, at the bottom of the pile, basically, in terms of problems to deal with. Um, but it is a very interesting ecosystem in, in which to study. Um, now, question for you, Jonah, do um, the, uh, oh my God, <laughs> why am I blanking on your species of bird right now? <laughs> Come on, get with it. I know. Uh, have they historically been found in the region? Yeah, so they were. They saddlebill stork, by the way. Um, so saddlebills, I had the, the Latin name coming to my head before the actual... Amphipior hinchus senegalensis used to be found in the Delta. Um, they used to breed there, um, but they no longer do. Um, I actually just... Some colleagues and I just had a paper published 
um, about a month ago on the first assessment of Saddable distribution. And this isn't just a plug because it's also very relevant to this entire episode. Um, and because, you know, you look at the range map of the saddle bill and it's flat out just made up. Um, no one's ever actually looked at the records of where they've occurred. And so that's what I did. And um, we did some other analyses. But, you know, this whole part of Western Africa is really interesting concerning the saddle bill because it's just these very um dis fragmented populations you know in mm. certain areas and the inner Niger delta was it appears that it was like an isolated breeding population because it's surrounded by desert and um you know maybe there were i'm sure there was some flow between I don't know. It's hard to tell because they're they're gone now. They don't right. breed there anymore. Um, a couple of juveniles have been seen, obviously, most likely dispersing. But that's just one of the casualties. I mean, like you said, four other species of storks have disappeared or uncommon. I think the um, abdim stork is the only species of stork that still breeds there. Uh Way a lot of other species of water birds that you didn't mention have become super uncommon. Bustards have become uncommon. Um, yeah, it's it's a pretty bad situation. There's a there's a really good book. It's actually an ebook that we'll include in the show notes. It's called Living on the Edge: um, Wetlands and Water Birds in uh, the Sahel. I think is the, mm. the subtitle. And it's a very extensive and very detailed book about just like what it sounds, wetlands and water birds in West and Central Africa. And there's a whole chapter on the inner Niger Delta, as well as other major wetlands of the region. And it's just really comprehensive and um, it's a really great ebook. And so you can get it for free. So the link will have um, the downloadable PDF from ResearchGate. Uh, yeah. Okay. Moving on to back to North America, hopping around here. Um, the once mighty Colorado river, uh, previously used to reach the sea of Cortez in Mexico, (laughs) um, was also once North America's largest wetland um, at the Delta where the Colorado River reached the sea. And of course it is no longer. Um, and it it's such a it's been such a drastic change that it seems like it would have taken so long to happen. but you know you can read um, in Sand County Almanac by Aldo Leopold, One of his essays is called The Green Lagoons from 1922. And he describes him and his brother canoeing through the Colorado River Delta. And, you know, just describes it as like walls of mesquite and willow trees, hundreds of lagoons. Um, You know, one of his famous line from the essay is the river was everywhere and nowhere. Um, There were still jaguars down there then. And he describes, you know, finding jaguar tracks. 
huge flocks of waterfowl, spent the winter down there. Um, and it's just, it's just gone now because the river hardly, hardly reaches the Sea of Cortez anymore. So, you know, all of, all of this is the same, basically, the way that these rivers become degraded. In classic 20th century fashion, dams were built on the Colorado River, um, which eventually caused the flow all the way downstream into the sea to dwindle. And really, by the 1970s, the, the wetland delta had just completely dried up. And only in certain years, you know, especially years when there was a lot of snow melt from the Rocky Mountains, did the river actually reach the sea. Um, today, the delta, like I said, largely remains dried up. But there's efforts to restore it. But just like all these other ones, it's only ever going to be a shadow of its former glory. Um, but there's been there's been some several major milestone events in an, in the attempt to restore the delta, um, especially in the past decade. So in 2014 was the biggest one, the first and the biggest one. Um, the Morelos Dam on the Arizona-Mexico border was removed, and it released. A lot of water, basically enough to fill 52,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools. And so that huge um, sudden flow of water took about two months to reach the Sea of Cortez, but it was the first time that the Colorado River reached the sea in 20 years. So, yeah, that was a, that was a major event. Um but it's it's still not enough. The only reason it reached it is because it was like that huge burst, right? Um, and there there have been some, you know, removals. Um, there's a desire to remove other dams, rather. Um, but since the Morellis Dam was removed there has been a 16% increase in the vegetation in one area of the previous delta called the Laguna Grande, which is sort of like a targeted restoration area. And again, you could go and it's amazing compared, especially wetlands, what you can see on satellite imagery, um, because wetlands are just so like stark on a landscape when you're looking at Google Earth. So you can go to uh, go on Google Earth or whatever satellite imagery and and look at the Colorado River Delta and you're probably going to see down near the sea this this big green area and that's probably the Laguna Grande which is like I said this targeted restoration area um there's an international collaborative effort called Raise the River that's kind of forging the way in restoration of the Colorado River Delta so they're they're trying to come up with water allocation deals to bring the river back to the Delta. And, you know, this is an area where we're talking about the Southwestern United States water wars, not even just the United <laughs> States. This has to do with Mexico as well. So just the Southwest water wars, um, you know, it's a, the effort of raise the river is pretty massive. And, you know, just because of the water wars and, big agriculture in the desert Southwest and, you know, large urban areas like Phoenix and Las Vegas, hydropower products, projects. I mean, 
Um, you know, it's it just, in my opinion, it's just futile to a certain extent because there's there's just not enough water to share with the land. And, hmm. you know, this also brings up an issue with wetland degradation that's related to to environmental justice because here we are in the United States we damned it in the early 20th century um, and then we just completely cut off the flow of water into Mexico and so there was communities down there just like in these other parts of the world that we've been talking about where people are forced to leave because of actions upstream and so it's it's unjust and you know we're you know try to backpedal and come up with these water deals but like i said with large urban areas like phoenix and las vegas it's um it's just futile um yeah so anyways why don't we talk about some some less gloomy some wetland wet restoration (laughs) that's been successful um, exactly so uh, a major delta that um you know has been more or less restored and continuing restored but as a general overall pretty good you know success story is the danube river delta uh so the danube river delta is the second largest river delta after the volga uh, which is found in you know in the northern portion of the Caspian Sea, you know from the Volga River in Russia, um, it is it it alone is the most preserved in Europe. Although it's smaller to the Volga Delta, it's much more protected. It contains twenty five different types of ecosystems, so absolutely huge. It covers more than two thousand square miles, and it's formed by three major channels named after the ports: Sochinia, Sodina, and the um in the south um every year the danube river deposits approximately 67 million tons of alluvia um, causing the delta to grow each year uh and so literally each day it's growing if you will which that's what all wetlands are supposed to you know doing in there when they're properly functioning and not restricted um I found this when I was doing this re- the research and realized that it actually has the largest reed bed expanse in the world with over 600,000 acres. Of oh reeds. my gosh. It is so cool. So great, you know, of course, for migratory fowl, you know, nesting and whatnot. Uh, there are actually even three, uh, there's 28 villages within the area. Um, so about 15,000 inhabitants. Great. You know, that sounds like a lot, but. It's more or less, you know, feasible. Uh, the, you know, the, of course, the Danube, you know, larger, very large river covers, you know, goes through s- several major countries in Europe, like Germany and Austria, very populated countries. Um, and ultimately makes its course and the Delta is found between Romania and Ukraine on the Black Sea. It actually travels through four major capitals in Europe, the uh, Vienna, Bratislava, Budapest, and Belgrade, which is pretty incredible because, you know, with that many people, you, you just kind of assume that all this, you know, the river is going to be pretty, pretty awful, uh, which was the case, you know, uh, there was not always being respected, you know, series of dams and whatnot and so forth, which I'll talk about here in a little bit. Um, the Danube Delta uh, on its own, however, has is very biodiverse with over 5,000 species of, you know, plants, 
animals, you name it, uh, that have been identified so far. And this kind of puts it on par with the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, which is pretty crazy in terms of diversity. There are more than 300 species of birds, both resident and migratory. Um, and this is actually happens to do with the location. You know, it's perfectly, um, not perfectly, but it's very well situated, if you will, um, between the Equator and the North Pole. So all those different species going between. Um, and actually is the largest uh, colony, has the largest colonies of pelicans in Europe. Um, you have very, you have 12 distinct habitat types, uh, varying from deep aquatic to forests that grow on the sandbanks, even flaunting, uh, you know, what one could describe as a Mediterranean vibe, if you will. Um, and whereas previously hunting and fishing haven't weren't as much control, but nowadays it's much more controlled. Um, and, uh, you know, animals have been coming back such as otters, uh, different fish species, um, uh, which call it uh, their um, sturgeon species and whatnot uh, coming back, and also the Danube Delta was also um, became a World Heritage Site in 1991, um, and about 50% of the biosphere reserve remains intact. Um, you know, of course, there's exploitation, there's fishing, and so on and so forth. Uh, granted, you have pollution from the major rivers, but overall. It's doing pretty well. And on top of that, um, what I wanted to share with you is um, there's also some rewilding efforts and whatnot going on, um, especially in the Ukrainian portion. Um, so with the removing of dams and whatnot, a lot of native species have come back. Um, you have, um, how would I say this? A lot of um, you know old equipment that used to be found there you know, you know, being abandoned and whatnot. Um, earlier on in the 70s, there was a great series of dams that were built on some of the major rivers that have now have been taken care of. Um, and now they've even, um, you know, applied the principles of rewilding Europe with you know, some serious megafauna species uh, with the introduction or reintroduction, depending on how you see it, of the, the conic horses. Um, and of course, hor horses have an important role to play in eating, um, you know, they kind of keep plane systems in check, if you will, and keeping forests, you know, open and whatnot. Um, historically, you would have had um, the, the tarpon horse species that would have lived there. Um, you know, you have other bird species that have come back. Um, and something that's interesting, which I'm not sure exactly what my take is on it, but they've actually introduced, um, the, the domestic version of the Asiatic water buffalo. Granted, Asiatic water buffalo never lived there or, you know, are indigenous. They have been domesticated in the area for, or were brought there, to, you know, as domestic animals for a long time, since the Middle Ages. And one could argue that they kind of occupy the space of what the orcs, you know, orcs could have done or whatnot. But it's up in the air. But they do have some ecological functions. And if you are interested, we will have the article and, you know, the resources to check out later. But um, it is, it's a very, you know, really cool place. I know Joan and I have always dreamed about visiting the Danube Delta for yes. sure. It's, it's a very pristine uh, Delta granted, you know, with its flaws because of human, you know, intervention and whatnot, but it's gotten a lot better and it's a very impressive, very well off or better off, I should say, uh, Delta that you could visit in all things in Europe, a very highly densely, you know, densely populated area, um, or continent, I should say. I, uh, 
I vowed that you you didn't forget that I vowed when I finished my master's degree, yes. whenever that is, that we're going to Romania. Yes, we are. Holy cow. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, I love it. Because there's, of course, so many things that we'll see in Romania. It's awesome. Um, now, continuing with that mentor, momentum in terms of, you know, restored wetlands, let's check whether there was a Lagone uh, floodplain. Another Ramsar wetland, of course, you know, you've dealt it, that goes without saying, but another Ramsar wetland of um, the semi-arid Sahel region in South Africa. So if you're looking at Mali, you want to take a little bit of a right and towards Central Africa. Um, and um, historically, you know, growing human population, like everywhere else, has led to increased wetland deg degradation, of course, to do dams. Impoundments for agriculture and livestock, watering, and so on and so forth. Um, so, of course, once again, water bird. This is a common theme here. Uh, water bird populations among other wild groups declined, on, you know, until impoundments were gradually removed in 1995, and to restore the historic flood regimes. Uh, between 1995 and 2000, there was a 50% increase in number of water birds counted, including substantial increases of saddlebill storks, which is really great news. Um, and, uh, you know, it just, you know, it goes to show, you know, these two examples, it goes to show when, you know, the, the public will is there, when the research is there, um, sometimes when the money's there, things can be accomplished, but ultimately it comes down to the people that are in the area or sometimes not even that it comes down to people who are upriver and so on and so forth. But when there's a concerted effort, you know, things are possible. Yeah, and note that uh, we only talk about two restored wetlands and like a lot more degraded wetlands. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because that's a good representation of what most wetlands yeah, are. Yeah, for every like. you know restored wetland, you've got four or five that are severely degraded for sure. Yeah. So then we come to our last sort of uh, category that we've made up for talking about these wetlands um which are man-made wetlands and so all throughout this we've been talking about how all these wetlands have been degraded by people for one reason or another um but there's a couple interesting examples that i want to talk about that demonstrate how in some unique situations man-made man-made wetlands um, really serve a, a, a vital role on a landscape. And of course, on a, on a smaller scale, man-made wetlands are important. Um, I tend to not favor, I've probably talked about this before, but I tend to not favor like the trade-off kind of wetland building. Like, okay, if you're going to develop this whole area, you have to flood this area to make a wetland. And um, well, I think we talked about this last in the last episode That's where right. it's just a compromise. And, you know, just because you get rid of this wetland and put it somewhere else doesn't mean it's going to be the same. Um, but the first one is one that's close to home for me. And also, I'm actually like geographically close to it right now. <laughs> um, it's called the Salton Sea. And so this is a really historically ironic the quote-unquote man-made wetland. So this is in Southern California. Um, there's this big depression in the desert just east of 
San Diego east of the Peninsula Range, um, in the in the Imperial Valley. It's called the Salton Basin, and historically it was known as Lake Cahia, but it dried up about 400 years ago, and that's nothing new. We've always known that, um, but. You know, and, and following that period of drying up, there used to be lots of Native American communities around it, but then it dried up because of just climate change and stuff. Um, but in certain years when the Colorado River overflowed, the Salton Basin would fill up and it would become like a temporary body of water. Um, but, you know, that wasn't that wasn't like something that was happening every year. That was in some pretty unique cases. So fast forward this basin is dry. It's just desert. Um, naturally happened in 1905, you know, they're building all these dams and canals along the Colorado river, which is why the Delta ended up drying up. So this is connected. Um, they, there was, so they're building all these dams and these canals and there was lots of silt building up because the river is carrying all the silt. And all this silt buildup led to led the river to overflow it, its banks into the desert because there was just too much silt building up. And for two years, the river overflowed its banks into the Salton Basin. And that's how the current Salton Sea was created. And it's just it's really interesting i'm fascinated by it maybe because i i love it out there and i love birding out there and um but it's just such a it's just such a weird Mixed story yeah. coincidence um that this would happen this you know because imagine if that basin wasn't there all this water would have just gone in the desert and gone nowhere would have just evaporated um but it's also just ironic because following the creation of this sea, the delta became desiccated. And so all these water birds that would have spent the winter in the Colorado River Delta, they all of a sudden lost that um, super important wintering area all because of this man-made accident. But Ironically, now they've switched to using the Salton Sea as their wintering habitat. You know, not that far as the bird flies. Um, so the Salton Sea has replaced the Delta, and it's one of the most important wintering and stopover points in the Pacific Migratory Flyway. And, you know, just for this is just one of the species, but it supports um, 30% of the American white pelican population among lots of other waterbird populations. Over 400 species of birds have been recorded at the sea and the wetlands like around its periphery, a lot of which are managed as national wildlife refuges. Um, but there's no um, outlet to the sea. And so that water's just sitting there, was just has been just sitting there in that basin. And so by the 1960s, the salinity levels of the sea had become alarmingly high because there's lots of salt deposits in the lake bed. It's in the desert, so there's a high rate of evaporation. Um, there's also 
high saline inflows and agricultural runoff that sort of makes the water conditions worse. And then you got algal blooms and mass die-offs of all the fish that had been introduced. Um, and then also a major avian die-offs from diseases have increased in frequency. And I mean, in the 50s and 60s, the Salton Sea was like a booming resort place. Like it was, people were moving out there, all these communities were being built up because it was just like a paradise in the desert. And then as the then reality salt, set in. yeah, as the salt levels started to increase, all the fish started dying. It's a pretty eerie place because there's just mass. I mean, there's just ghost towns out there. There's a lot of people like older people that live out there, but for the most part, there's just ghost towns and it's a, it's a pretty gross place to be frank. There's some places on the Western shore where the substrate of the shore is our dead fish. <laughs> so just like millions of dead fish, especially tilapia. Oh, cause they introduced tilapia there. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. They just introduced a ton of freshwater fish, but tilapia, I mean, there's still tilapia there cause they can, tolerate high salt levels but a lot of fish are dying off because it's just getting worse and worse this this i mean the salinity level currently is five percent which is greater than seawater <laughs> so <laughs> oh my you know gosh. all these fish are dying which means there's not as much food for for birds especially like i said 30 percent of the american pelican population there's lots of diseases in the birds um just in the last couple of years, there have been some major um, die-offs. I forget what the one disease was recently. Anyways, it's just it's just an ecological disaster that seemed great at first, and it's just ironic, like, oh, the, okay, well, it replaced the, the river delta. Oh, no, just kidding. <laughs> but yeah, now the Salton Sea is disappearing, so what's going to happen when all these bird, when this habitat disappears? like it is and there's so much attempts to um to you know manage water out there but where is the water coming from and it, it's just a disaster and you know there's just not sufficient sufficient freshwater inflow that's something they're trying to manage so that the salt levels don't continue to rise um and so the the sea is is shrinking obviously and it's estimated that by next year it will have shrunk by 60% since 2012. So in eight years, it's going to have shrunk by 60%. Wow. So it's Something like... you can probably almost see happen, you know, right yeah, before your eyes. That's how exactly, fast it's going. Exactly. And the same kind of issues as the um, Aral Sea. I mean, it's, it's like a more rapid Aral Sea, but it's also... This man-made, ironically man-made body of water. But the same issues are going to occur with and are occurring with dust. And there's all these agricultural chemicals in there. So it's a public health hazard. Um, and yeah, there's there's all these efforts to address these issues. But the impending loss of the sea is it's inevitable. And it's just going to have major ramifications for water birds and, and other wildlife out there too. So... You know, restoration of the Colorado River Delta to its historic conditions is all the more important right now because 
Time is running out for the birds that spend the winter and stop over at the Salton Sea. Um, and then the next sort of situation, so that's one example of an interesting and ironic man-made wetland. Um, another one is a little more, um, well, it's a little bit less gloomy. rooted in antiquity. Um, so, and this, you know, the reason I want to talk about this is because one of my colleagues, Gopi Sundar, and has been doing a lot of research with, with lots of other people um, in India and Nepal, looking at waterbird ecology and waterbird populations in cultivated, why did I say it that way? In cultivated rice fields in India and Nepal. And so, you know, we have a tendency, we, present company included, have a tendency to, to badmouth all agricultural development across the board um, because, all, I mean, generally it's destroying wildlife habitat. Um, and, you know, Westerners were especially critical of non-Westerners and agriculture development um, right. that's threatening wildlife. And, but, you know, the, the research they're doing in these rice fields in India and Nepal are really interesting um, because they're finding that breeding success for colonial nesting waterbirds is similar or even higher in areas with a mosaic of natural habitat and cultivation compared with strictly protected natural habitat alone. And so basically maintaining this mosaic of uh, human altered areas and natural habitat is is beneficial for the waterbirds and of course beneficial for the humans because they're growing their crops there, especially right. rice. The crop, yeah. And so I just, I, I find this really interesting because um, rice cultivation in South Asia has obviously been present for thousands of years. And so these flooded fields have served as wildlife habitat for just Not as only for long. birds, but for amphibians and... Yeah, yeah. Of course, you know, there's a, it's not going to be beneficial to, to some wildlife, like it's going to be beneficial to some others. So, you know, lots of large mammals and carnivores and stuff aren't going to be found there. But if there's a, if there's a balance, if there's like some sort of landscape planning that takes this into account, then there, there still can be room for those, yeah, for, the, for both those yeah. species. Um, but if, but like I just said, like, it has to be managed properly as far as, you know, seasonal flooding, the different types of crops that are being used. Um, and depending on the species of water bird, they're going to be dependent on different um, different types of flooding or, or whatever. So I just sort of wanted to close with a, a quote from the most recent paper by um, my colleague Gopi Sundar and some others he worked on some stork breeding um, research in Nepal. And in the paper, they said, always assuming that agriculture is detrimental to large water birds such as storks is incorrect. And instead, we should be employing an evidence-based process that can reflect sound ecological information from a, vi of, from a variety of settings where this, these species exist. So I just really like that because it, it just hits the nail on the head that, these blanket statements that yeah. 
all agriculture is going to be bad for for water birds it's it's not the case and um this isn't unique to nepal and india you know in central california it's a very different situation but central california there's extensive rice cultivation and those provide a lot of water bird habitats um so you know, you have these things have to be managed properly, and you have to look at it at a larger landscape yeah, it has level. Yeah, be balanced. Yeah, yeah, like everything. But it's possible for sure, and I think that's something very key to take home. It's you know, it's not just because you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't you know, to live and have wildlife and you know, nature prosper doesn't mean that we have to just you know, sacrifice ourselves and you know, just cease to exist. But if we just had a natural balance of things, didn't have to mass produce and when we did things took nature into consideration or didn't always see it as this kind of eternal nemesis then you know both can coexist pretty well you know uh, but it's a lot of times you know which we always talk about that you know the interface between the two it's you know man who's always feeling threatened and then this conquest for always more that ultimately leads to the destruction of you know all these things that we cherish and are so crucial to our own existence very deep, very deep <laughs> but very true yeah. <laughs> okay so today's sustainability tip um is to learn about some wetland restoration going on in your local area. A lot of times these efforts, you know, they look for volunteers so you can maybe get involved. And also I just advise, you know, a lot of the, the wetlands we talked about, there's there's a very complex and interesting history behind them, especially, you know, behind their degradation or their restoration. So, you know, consider a historic perspective of where you live and, and think about how the community in which you live can can change water use behavior or um, or whatever to promote wetland restoration um, because you know it, it starts at the local level okay well, Thanks for talking about wetlands with me, Camden. It is my pleasure any day. <laughs> we just yeah. have to, you know, add more hours to the day and we'll make a second podcast. Huh? <laughs> yeah. The, I don't know what we, what we Come up with a but... catchy name, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, yeah, we could talk about wetlands forever. Um, yes. They're really cool. And um, definitely suggest you check out the, the sources we have in the... Um, show notes because there's lots of links to so you could read about some of the wetlands we talked about um, and to some of the literature we talked about um, if you have any questions or comments about the podcast we'd love to hear from you you can connect with us on facebook or instagram at conservation chronicles or you can email us at conservation chronicles at gmail.com you can also find other episodes like if you didn't listen to the first our first episode on wetlands, you can find it at conservationchronicles.podbean.com. Um, Camden, thanks again for joining me. I'm sure we will 
hear from you sometime in the future. I, I, hope, I would hope so. <laughs> You're not invited back! That's right. The ratings have plummeted because you've been on... <laughs>